Section 17 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanne Turner. Section 17. President Theodore Roosevelt, December 5, 1905, Part 3. One of the most effective instruments for peace is the Monroe Doctrine, as it has been and is being gradually developed by this nation and accepted by other nations. No other policy could have been as efficient in promoting peace in the Western Hemisphere and in giving to each nation thereon the chance to develop along its own lines. If we had refused to apply the doctrine to changing conditions, it would now be completely outworn, would not meet any of the needs of the present day, and indeed would probably by this time have sunk into complete oblivion. It is useful at home, and is meeting with recognition abroad because we have adapted our application of it to meet the growing and changing needs of the hemisphere. When we announce a policy such as the Monroe Doctrine, we thereby commit ourselves to the consequences of the policy, and those consequences from time to time alter. It is out of the question to claim a right and yet shirk the responsibility for its exercise. Not only we, but all American republics who are benefited by the existence of the doctrine must recognize the obligations each nation is under as regards foreign peoples no less than its duty to insist upon its own rights. That our rights and interests are deeply concerned in the maintenance of the doctrine is so clear as hardly to need argument. This is especially true in view of the construction of the Panama Canal. As a mere matter of self-defense, we must exercise a close watch over the approaches to this canal and this means that we must be thoroughly alive to our interests in the Caribbean Sea. There are certain essential points which must never be forgotten as regards the Monroe Doctrine. In the first place, we must as a nation make it evident that we do not intend to treat it in any shape or way as an excuse for aggrandizement on our part at the expense of the republics to the South. We must recognize the fact that in some South American countries there has been much suspicion, lest we should interpret the Monroe Doctrine as in some way inimical to their interests, and we must try to convince all the other nations of this continent, once and for all, that no just and orderly government has anything to fear from us. There are certain republics to the south of us which have already reached such a point of stability, order, and prosperity that they themselves, though as yet hardly consciously, are among the guarantors of this doctrine. These republics we now meet not only on a basis of entire equality, but in a spirit of frank and respectful friendship, which we hope is mutual. If all of the republics to the south of us will only grow as those to which I allude have already grown, all need for us to be the especial champions of the doctrine will disappear, 
for no stable and growing American republic wishes to see some great non-American military power acquire territory in its neighborhood. All that this country desires is that the other republics on this continent shall be happy and prosperous, and they cannot be happy and prosperous unless they maintain order within their boundaries and behave with a just regard for their obligations toward outsiders. It must be understood that under no circumstances will the United States use the Monroe Doctrine as a cloak for territorial aggression. We desire peace with all the world, but perhaps most of all with the other peoples of the American continent. There are, of course, limits to the wrongs which any self-respecting nation can endure. It is always possible that wrong actions toward this nation or toward citizens of this nation in some state unable to keep order among its own people, unable to secure justice from outsiders, and unwilling to do justice to those outsiders who treat it well, may result in our having to take action to protect our rights. But such action will not be taken with a view to territorial aggression, and it will be taken at all only with extreme reluctance and when it has become evident that every other resource has been exhausted. Moreover, we must make it evident that we do not intend to permit the Monroe Doctrine to be used by any nation on this continent as a shield to protect it from the consequences of its own misdeeds against foreign nations. If a republic to the south of us commits a tort against a foreign nation, such as an outrage against a citizen of that nation, then the Monroe Doctrine does not force us to interfere to prevent punishment of the tort, save to see that the punishment does not assume the form of territorial occupation in any shape. The case is more difficult when it refers to a contractual obligation. Our own government has always refused to enforce such contractual obligations on behalf of its citizens by an appeal to arms. It is much to be wished that all foreign governments would take the same view, but they do not, and in consequence we are liable at any time to be brought face to face with disagreeable alternatives. On the one hand, this country would certainly decline to go to war to prevent a foreign government from collecting a just debt. On the other hand, it is very inadvisable to permit any foreign power to take possession, even temporarily, of the custom houses of an American republic in order to enforce the payment of its obligations, for such temporary occupation might turn into a permanent occupation. The only escape from these alternatives may at any time be that we must ourselves undertake to bring about some arrangement by which so much as possible of a just obligation shall be paid. It is far better that this country should put through such an arrangement rather than allow any foreign country to undertake it. To do so ensures the defaulting republic from having to pay debt of an improper character under duress, while it also ensures honest creditors of the republic from being passed by in the interest of dishonest or grasping creditors. 
Moreover, for the United States to take such a position offers the only possible way of ensuring us against a clash with some foreign power. The position is, therefore, in the interest of peace as well as in the interest of justice. It is of benefit to our people. It is of benefit to foreign peoples. And most of all, it is really of benefit to the people of the country concerned. This brings me to what should be one of the fundamental objects of the Monroe Doctrine. We must ourselves, in good faith, try to help upward toward peace and order those of our sister republics which need such help. Such as there has been a gradual growth of the ethical element in the relations of one individual to another, so we are, even though slowly, more and more coming to recognize the duty of bearing one another's burdens, not only as among individuals, but also as among nations. Santo Domingo, in her turn, has now made an appeal to us to help her, and not only every principle of wisdom, but every generous instinct within us bids us respond to the appeal. It is not of the slightest consequence whether we grant the aid needed by Santo Domingo as an incident to the wise development of the Monroe Doctrine or because we regard the case of Santo Domingo as standing wholly by itself and to be treated as such, and not on general principles or with any reference to the Monroe Doctrine. The important point is to give the needed aid, and the case is certainly sufficiently peculiar to deserve to be judged purely on its own merits. The conditions in Santo Domingo have for a number of years grown from bad to worse, until a year ago all society was on the verge of disillusion. Fortunately, just at this time, a ruler sprang up in Santo Domingo who, with his colleagues, saw the dangers threatening their country and appealed to the friendship of the only great and powerful neighbor who possessed the power, and, as they hoped, also the will to help them. There was imminent danger of foreign intervention. The previous rulers of Santo Domingo had recklessly incurred debts, and owing to her internal disorders, she had ceased to be able to provide means of paying the debts. The patience of her foreign creditors had become exhausted, and at least two foreign nations were on the point of intervention, and were only prevented from intervening by the unofficial assurance of this government that it would itself strive to help Santo Domingo in her hour of need. In the case of one of these nations, only the actual opening of negotiations to this end by our government prevented the seizure of territory in Santo Domingo by a European power. Of the debts incurred, some were just, while some were not of a character which really renders it obligatory on or proper for Santo Domingo to pay them in full. But she could not pay any of them unless some stability was assured her government and people. Accordingly, the executive department of our government negotiated a treaty under which we are to try to help the Dominican people to straighten out their finances. This treaty is pending before the Senate. In the meantime, 
a temporary arrangement has been made which will last until the Senate has had time to take action upon the treaty. Under this arrangement, the Dominican government has appointed Americans to all the important positions in the Customs Service, and they are seeing to the honest collection of the revenues, turning over 45% to the government for running expenses and putting the other 55% into a safe depository for equitable division in case the treaty shall be ratified among the various creditors, whether European or American. The custom houses offer well-nigh the only sources of revenue in Santo Domingo, and the different revolutions usually have as their real aim the obtaining of these custom houses. The mere fact that the collectors of customs are Americans that they are performing their duties with efficiency and honesty, and that the treaty is pending in the Senate, gives a certain moral power to the government of Santo Domingo which it has not had before. This has completely discouraged all revolutionary movement, while it has already produced such an increase in the revenues that the government is actually getting more from the 45%, that the American collectors turn over to it than it got formerly when it took the entire revenue. It is enabling the poor, harassed people of Santo Domingo once more to turn their attention to industry and to be free from the cure of interminable revolutionary disturbance. It offers to all bona fide creditors, American and European, the only really good chance to obtain that to which they are justly entitled, while it in return gives to Santo Domingo the only opportunity of defense against claims which it ought not to pay. For now, if it meets the views of the Senate, we shall ourselves thoroughly examine all these claims, whether American or foreign, and see that none that are improper are paid. There is, of course, opposition to the treaty from dishonest creditors, foreign and American, and from the professional revolutionists of the island itself. We have already reason to believe that some of the creditors who do not dare expose their claims to honest scrutiny are endeavoring to stir up sedition in the island and opposition to the treaty. In the meantime, I have exercised the authority vested in me by the joint resolution of the Congress to prevent the introduction of arms into the island for revolutionary purposes. Under the course taken, stability and order and all the benefits of peace are at last coming to Santo Domingo. Danger of foreign intervention has been suspended, and there is at last a prospect that all creditors will get justice no more and no less. If the arrangement is terminated by the failure of the treaty, chaos will follow. And if chaos follows, sooner or later, this government may be involved in serious difficulties with foreign governments over the island, or else may be forced itself to intervene in the island in some unpleasant fashion. Under the proposed treaty, the independence of the island is scrupulously respected. The danger of violation of the Monroe Doctrine by the intervention of foreign powers vanishes, 
and the interference of our government is minimized, so that we shall only act in conjunction with the Santo Domingo authorities to secure the proper administration of the customs, and therefore to secure the payment of just debts and to secure the Dominican government against demands for unjust debts. The proposed method will give the people of Santo Domingo the same chance to move onward and upward which we have already given to the people of Cuba. It will be doubly to our discredit as a nation if we fail to take advantage of this chance, for it will be of damage to ourselves and it will be of incalculable damage to Santo Domingo. Every consideration of wise policy and above all, every consideration of large generosity, bids us meet the request of Santo Domingo as we are now trying to meet it. We cannot consider the question of our foreign policy without at the same time treating of the army and the navy. We now have a very small army indeed, one well-nigh infinitesimal when compared with the army of any other large nation. Of course, the army we do have should be as nearly perfect of its kind and for its size as is possible. I do not believe that any army in the world has a better average of enlisted men or a better type of junior officer, but the army should be trained to act effectively in a mass. Provision should be made by sufficient appropriations for maneuvers of a practical kind, so that the troops may learn how to take care of themselves under actual service conditions. Every march, for instance, being made with the soldier loaded exactly as he would be in active campaign. The generals and colonels would thereby have opportunity of handling regiments, brigades, and divisions, and the commissary and medical departments would be tested in the field, Provision should be made for the exercise at least of a brigade and by preference of a division in marching and embarking at some point on our coast and disembarking at some other point and continuing its march. The number of posts in which the army is kept in time of peace should be materially diminished and the posts that are left made correspondingly larger. No local interests should be allowed to stand in the way of assembling the greater part of the troops which would at need form our field armies in stations of such size as will permit the best training to be given to the personnel of all grades, including the high officers and staff officers. To accomplish this end, we must have not company or regimental garrisons, but brigade and division garrisons. Promotion by mere seniority can never result in a thoroughly efficient corps of officers in the higher ranks unless there accompanies it a vigorous weeding-out process. Such a weeding-out process, that is, such a process of selection, is a chief feature of the four years course of the young officer at West Point. There is no good reason why it should stop immediately upon his graduation. While at West Point, he is dropped unless he comes up to a certain standard of excellence, and when he graduates, he takes rank in the Army according to his rank of graduation. The results are good at West Point, 
and there should be in the army itself something that will achieve the same end. After a certain age has been reached, the average officer is unfit to do good work below a certain grade. Provision should be made for the promotion of exceptionally meritorious men over the heads of their comrades and for the retirement of all men who have reached a given age without getting beyond a given rank. This age of retirement, of course, changing from rank to rank. In both the Army and the Navy, there should be some principle of selection, that is, of promotion for merit, and there should be a resolute effort to eliminate the aged officers of reputable character who possess no special efficiency. There should be an increase in the coast artillery force so that our coast fortifications can be in some degree adequately manned. There is special need for an increase and reorganization of the medical department of the Army. In both the Army and Navy, there must be the same thorough training for duty in the Staff Corps as in the fighting line. Only by such training in advance can we be sure that in actual war, field operations and those at sea will be carried on successfully. The importance of this was shown conclusively in the Spanish-American and the Russo-Japanese wars. The work of the medical departments in the Japanese Army and Navy is especially worthy of study. I renew my recommendation of January 9, 1905, as to the medical department of the Army, and call attention to the equal importance of the needs of the Staff Corps of the Navy. In the medical department of the Navy, the first in importance is the reorganization of the Hospital Corps, on the lines of the Gallinger Bill, Senate 3984, February 1, 1904, and the reapportionment of the different grades of the medical officers to meet service requirements. It seems advisable also that medical officers of the Army and Navy should have similar rank and pay in their respective grades so that their duties can be carried on without friction when they are brought together. The base hospitals of the Navy should be put in condition to meet modern requirements and hospital ships be provided. Unless we now provide with ample forethought for the medical needs of the Army and Navy, appalling suffering of a preventable kind is sure to occur if ever the country goes to war. It is not reasonable to expect successful administration in time of war of a department which lacks a third of the number of officers necessary to perform the medical service in time of peace. We need men who are not merely doctors. They must be trained in the administration of military medical service. Our Navy must, relatively to the navies of other nations, always be of greater size than our Army. We have most wisely continued for a number of years to build up our Navy, and it has now reached a fairly high standard of efficiency. This standard of efficiency must not only be maintained, but increased. It does not seem to be necessary, however, that the Navy should, at least in the immediate future, be increased beyond the present number of units. What is now clearly necessary is to substitute efficient, 
for inefficient units as the latter become worn out or as it becomes apparent that they are useless. Probably the result would be obtained by adding a single battleship to our Navy each year, the superseded or outworn vessels being laid up or broken up as they are thus replaced. The four single turret monitors built immediately after the close of the Spanish War, for instance, are vessels which would be of but little use in the event of war. The money spent upon them could have been more usefully spent in other ways. Thus it would have been far better never to have built a single one of these monitors and to have put the money into an ample supply of reserve guns. Most of the smaller cruisers and gunboats, though they serve a useful purpose so far as they are needed for international police work, would not add to the strength of our Navy in a conflict with a serious foe. There is urgent need of providing a large increase in the number of officers, and especially in the number of enlisted men. Recent naval history has emphasized certain lessons which ought not to, but which do, need emphasis. Seagoing torpedo boats or destroyers are indispensable not only for making night attacks by surprise upon an enemy, but even in battle for finishing already crippled ships. Under exceptional circumstances, submarine boats would doubtless be of use. Fast scouts are needed. The main strength of the Navy, however, lies and can only lie in the great battleships, the heavily armored, heavily gunned vessels which decide the mastery of the seas. Heavy armed cruisers also play a most useful part, and unarmed cruisers, if swift enough, are very useful as scouts. Between antagonists of approximately equal prowess, the comparative perfection of the instruments of war will ordinarily determine the fight. But it is, of course, true that the man behind the gun the man in the engine room, and the man in the conning tower, considered not only individually, but especially with regard to the way in which they work together, are even more important than the weapons with which they work. The most formidable battleship is, of course, helpless against even a light cruiser if the men aboard it are unable to hit anything with their guns and thoroughly well-handled cruisers may count seriously in an engagement with much superior vessels if the men aboard the latter are ineffective, whether from lack of training or from any other cause. Modern warships are most formidable mechanisms when well-handled, but they are utterly useless when not well-handled, and they cannot be handled at all without long and careful training. This training can under no circumstance be given when once war has broken out. No fighting ship of the first class should ever be laid up save for necessary repairs, and her crew should be kept constantly exercised on the high seas so that she may stand at the highest point of perfection. To put a new and untrained crew upon the most powerful battleship and send it out to meet a formidable enemy is not only to invite, but to ensure disaster and disgrace. 
to improvise crews at the outbreak of a war, so far as the serious fighting craft are concerned, is absolutely hopeless. If the officers and men are not thoroughly skilled in and have not been thoroughly trained to their duties, it would be far better to keep the ships in port during hostilities than to send them against a formidable opponent, for the result could only be that they would be either sunk or captured. The marksmanship of our Navy is now on the whole in a gratifying condition, and there has been a great improvement in fleet practice. We need additional seamen. We need a large store of reserve guns. We need sufficient money for ample target practice, ample practice of every kind at sea. We should substitute for comparatively inefficient types, the old third-class battleship Texas, the single turreted monitors above mentioned, and indeed all the monitors and some of the old cruisers, efficient, modern, seagoing vessels. Seagoing torpedo boat destroyers should be substituted for some of the smaller torpedo boats. During the present Congress, there need be no additions to the aggregate number of units of the Navy. Our Navy, though very small relatively to the navies of other nations, is for the present sufficient in point of numbers for our needs, and while we must constantly strive to make its efficiency higher, there need be no additions to the total of ships now built and building, save in the way of substitution as above outlined. I recommend the report of the Secretary of the Navy to the careful consideration of the Congress, especially with a view to the legislation therein advocated. During the past year, evidence has accumulated to confirm the expressions contained in my last two annual messages as to the importance of revising by appropriate legislation our system of naturalizing aliens. I appointed last March a commission to make a careful examination of our naturalization laws and to suggest appropriate measures to avoid the notorious abuses resulting from the improvident of unlawful granting of citizenship. This commission, composed of an officer of the Department of State, of the Department of Justice, and of the Department of Commerce and Labor, has discharged the duty imposed upon it and has submitted a report which will be transmitted to the Congress for its consideration and, I hope, for its favorable action. The distinguishing recommendations of the Commission are, first, a Federal Bureau of Naturalization to be established in the Department of Commerce and Labor to supervise the administration of the naturalization laws and to receive returns of naturalizations pending and accomplished. Second, uniformity of naturalization certificates, fees to be charged, and procedure. Third, more exacting qualifications for citizenship. Fourth, the preliminary declaration of intention to be abolished and no alien to be naturalized until at least 90 days after the filing of his petition. Fifth, jurisdiction to naturalize aliens to be confined to United States district courts and to such state courts as have jurisdiction in civil actions in which the amount in controversy is unlimited, 
in cities of over 100,000 inhabitants, the United States district courts to have exclusive jurisdiction in the naturalization of the alien residents of such cities. In my last message, I asked the attention of the Congress to the urgent need of action to make our criminal law more effective, and I most earnestly request that you pay heed to the report of the Attorney General on this subject. Centuries ago, it was especially needful to throw every safeguard round the accused. The danger then was lest he should be wronged by the state. The danger is now exactly the reverse. Our laws and customs tell immensely in favor of the criminal and against the interests of the public he has wronged. Some antiquated and outworn rules which once safeguarded the threatened rights of private citizens now merely work harm to the general body politic. The criminal law of the United States stands in urgent need of revision. The criminal process of any court of the United States should run throughout the entire territorial extent of our country. The delays of the criminal law, no less than of the civil, now amount to a very great evil. There seems to be no statute of the United States which provides for the punishment of a United States attorney or other officer of the government who corruptly agrees to wrongfully do or wrongfully refrain from doing any act when the consideration for such corrupt agreement is other than one possessing money value. This ought to be remedied by appropriate legislation. Legislation should also be enacted to cover explicitly, unequivocally, and beyond question, breach of trust in the shape of prematurely divulging official secrets by an officer or employee of the United States, and to provide a suitable penalty, therefore. Such officer or employee owes the duty to the United States to guard carefully and not to divulge or in any manner use prematurely information which is accessible to the officer or employee by reason of his official position. Most breaches of public trust are already covered by the law, and this one should be. It is impossible, no matter how much care is used, to prevent the occasional appointment to the public service of a man who, when tempted, proves unfaithful. But every means should be provided to detect and every effort made to punish the wrongdoer. So far as in my power, see each and every such wrongdoer shall be relentlessly hunted down, in no instance in the past has he been spared. In no instance in the future shall he be spared. His crime is a crime against every honest man in the nation, for it is a crime against the whole body politic. Yet in dwelling on such misdeeds, it is unjust not to add that they are altogether exceptional and that on the whole the employees of the government render upright and faithful service to the people. There are exceptions, notably in one or two branches of the service, but at no time in the nation's history has the public service of the nation taken as a whole stood on a higher plane than now, alike as regards honesty and as regards efficiency.
End of section 17.